0: Hello everyone and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the managing director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we started in 2020 with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And while we started SALT Talks as a response to the pandemic due to the fact that we had to cancel our global SALT conferences, which we host twice a year, one in the United States and one internationally. We're gonna continue to do these SALT Talks because they've been so fun, so engaging with our community. We've been uh, able to expose our community to so many interesting speakers and ideas and the interaction as well uh, with members of the SALT community has been uh, so much fun. So we're gonna continue these even around our conference circuit that we do. Uh, So we're very excited to continue these SALT Talks into 2021 with several talks per week on a variety of topics Uh, but what we're trying to do with salt talks is replicate the experience that we provide at our global conferences which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future and we're very excited today to welcome ben steel to salt talks Uh, ben steel is the senior fellow and director of international economics as well as the official historian in residence at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York City. He's also the founding editor of International Finance, a scholarly economics journal. He's the lead writer of the Council on Foreign Relations Geographics Economics blog, and the creator of five web-based interactives tracking global growth, global monetary policy, global imbalances, sovereign risk, central bank currency swaps, and China's Belt and Road Initiative. Prior to joining the Council on Foreign Relations in 1999, uh, Ben was the Director of the International Economics Program at the Royal Institute of International Affairs in London. He came to the Institute in 1992 from a Lloyds of London Tercentenary Research Fellowship at Newfield College at Oxford, where he received his MPhil and DPhil in economics. He also holds a bachelor's degree of Science and Economics, summa cum laude from the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Steele has written and spoken widely on international finance, monetary policy, financial markets, and economic and diplomatic history. He's testified before the U.S. House of Representatives, as well as the Senate and the CFTC, and he's a regular op-ed writer and commentator on CNBC. His most recent book, The Marshall Plan, Dawn of the Cold War, won the New York Historical Society's 2019 Barbara and David Zalaznick Prize for best work on American history. It won the American Academy of Diplomacy's 2018 Douglas Dillon Prize. It won the honorable mention or runner-up of the 2019 ACEs Marshall D. Shulman Prize and was shortlisted for the Duff Cooper Prize and is ranked number three among book authorities' best diplomacy books of all time. Hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, who actually is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Anthony is the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm. Anthony is also the chairman of SALT. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview.
1: Well, Dr. Steele, I have to tell you, I read your book, it feels like 100 years ago now, sir. I read it back in July of 2019. And I was thinking to myself, what a splendid book and what a splendid moment to write a book like this, because it was a time when America was thinking very big on the world stage in terms of how to be inclusive and engaged and how to make the world more peaceful through global shared prosperity. And so congratulations on the book. I know it's done very well. It's a bestseller, um, The Marshall Plan, Dawn of the Cold War. Uh, ben, if you know anything about me, I'm not really that promotional, right? If you probably, so that's why I'm, I'm waving the book like it's a windshield wiper in front of me, but I want people to go out and read this book uh, because it's very timely for what's going on in the world today. And uh, you talk about in the book, monetary nationalism and globalization as being a dangerous combination. And I would, I'm hoping you could explain to people who haven't yet read the book, what that means Uh, I
2: I think I actually uh, made that particular comment in my previous book, which was called The Battle of Bretton Woods. That was an historical narrative on the um, uh, Bretton Woods International Monetary Conference of um, 1944. That's where the uh, IMF and the World Bank were created and the dollar-based international monetary system. Um, And actually got the idea of doing the Marshall Plan book while I was writing Bretton Woods. I was working on an aftermath chapter, and it really hit me um, how very different the view of the post-war world was under President Truman in 1947 when the Marshall Plan was launched, and what it had been under FDR in 1944 when the Bretton Woods conference had been held.
1: Um, Explain that to to people because, uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize this, but in the mid 40s, 43, 44, uh, FDR was building the post-World War II architecture, as you point out in the book, Uh, but Truman had a totally different vision for where he wanted to go relative to FDR. So I was wondering if you could contrast those two visions.
2: Right. So um, in 1944, The US is very near the zenith of its its power historically. Um, We account for more than half the world's manufacturing output. Uh, One year later, we would have sole possession of atomic weapons. So this is a period in which we had enormous leeway to improvise with the architecture of both the global economy and the global political system. Now in 1944, um, FDR was still proceeding under the expectation, or one might say the the hope, that we could have what he called a one-world architecture. This is a world in which the United States and the Soviet Union would somehow find a means of cooperating with each other to promote peace and stability and economic prosperity throughout the world. Now that sounds naive now, um, but in in, um, April of 1945 when FDR died and Truman took over, he had no intention of overthrowing this foreign policy architecture that had been handed down to him Um, uh, by FDR, it was really circumstances that dictated that we needed to go in a very different direction. Now, there were four um, pillars of foreign policy thought that underlay FDR's one world vision, Um, and those were the following Those First of all, that the British Empire could somehow be peaceably dismantled. that didn't work out. It, um, uh, the, the British Empire collapsed very violently and chaotically in early 1947. Second, that the Soviets could be co opted into a, um, a, a peacetime, a permanent peacetime alliance with the United States to promote um, uh, political and economic stability through institutions like the United Nations, the IMF, and the World Bank. That didn't work out, obviously. Uh, the third was that Germany could somehow be um, profitably dismembered and deindustrialized. This was the so called Morgenthau plan for um, uh, Germany developed by FDR's Treasury Secretary Henry Morgenthau. The Truman administration was forced to reverse this because Germany was sinking into chaos and disorder and it was redounding to the benefit of the Soviet Union. And finally, and this goes back to Bretton Woods, there was a fourth pillar and that was the idea that somehow a globally integrated economy could be rebuilt on the basis of just short-term loans uh, from an international institution, um, the IMF, that would help countries who were in temporary balance of payments difficulty get back on the right track. That didn't work at all. When I referred to this idea of monetary nationalism, that was the idea at Bretton Woods that the United States could have it all, that uh, we could have the dollar, US dollar, as the foundation of an international monetary system, but it would be indelibly backed by, by gold. And we could meet this promise without, in any sense, tying ourselves down. As I pointed out in that book, it didn't turn out to be anything of, uh, of the sort. So when we get to 1947 and the Marshall Plan, the Truman administration is already in a major corrective mode. Now the State Department is talking openly about a two-world vision for the post-war order. Very different from the one that FDR had developed. And in this world, there would be um, martial states um, that would effectively be led by the United States. And these would value above um, all things, um, a, a democracy, a liberal political order, and free markets. And there would be what the State Department called the slave world or the communist world, which would be led by necessity of the Soviet Union. And obviously the Truman administration wanted to keep that as small as possible, concentrated in Eastern Europe, the immediate periphery of the Soviet Union.
1: And you know, so it's a fascinating time because you also point out in the book uh, that improvisation that we uh, were really trying. It's not, you know, sometimes people look back on the past and say, OK, they had this grand blueprint and they masterfully created this architecture, but it was a work in progress. And of course, we have the situation in Turkey and Greece, uh, which led to the introduction of the Truman Doctrine and the rejection of communism around the world. Um, But before I I, I go deeper into the book, I want to touch on Bretton Woods, if you don't mind, because I found that book also fascinating, which is perhaps why I conflated the two. Uh, Tell us about the idea behind Bretton Woods, uh, how well it worked, and why it failed. And obviously, with the August of 1971, uh, a pulling of the pin of gold tied to the U.S. dollar by Richard Nixon. Um, Give us some of your sense for that.
2: Well, um, Bretton Woods was um, a, rather, a rather eclectic amalgamation of views about what the post-war world would be. On the one hand, it was an extremely nationalist view, led by um, uh, Treasury Secretary Henry Morgenthau's assistant, um, Harry Dexter White. He was going to build this architecture around the U.S. dollar, which he said would be tied to gold, But in in no way did he want the United States to be constrained in how it operated its economy um, uh, by gold. So we wouldn't obey any sort of of rules dictated by the movement of uh, gold ownership um, uh, across borders. We would just have so much gold that people would be obliged to use the US dollar simply because after World War II, it was the only credible voucher For gold. It's hard to put ourselves back in that mindset now, but back in 1944, people really viewed gold as being the foundation of money and national currencies just being either more credible or less credible vouchers for gold. By the time we get to 1944, Britain being almost bankrupt, the pound sterling is no longer a credible voucher for gold. So you're left with the United States. But Um, On top of that view, um, Harry Dexter White, remarkably, as um, uh, I I explained um, in the the Battle of Breton Woods, um, was a a progressive romantic who had um, uh, very positive views about the Um, role of the Russian Revolution in in, um, uh, the the, the history of mankind. He viewed it as a great liberating event, and he was quite convinced that the world was going to be moving more towards a Soviet state-managed economy um, style of operation um, after the war, um, he viewed um, uh, Republicans in Congress as being um, uh, against U.S. interest by um, uh, by trying to counter or contain the Soviet Union, and he himself was in fact um, uh, uh, an, an agent of the Soviet uh, Union. He passed classified documents uh, to them. Um, He pursued um, major foreign policy initiatives that redounded to their interests. And it's hard to to imagine those things being spliced together. Um, But it was really central to the um, American vision at Bretton Woods that the Soviets would somehow be willing to sign on to an American architecture for the the post-war world. By the time we get to 1947, it's clear that's not going to happen. And none of the assumptions that Harry Dexter White took into Bretton Woods turned out to be true. For example, um, the monetary system at Bretton Woods uh, assumed that all the major European currencies would be completely convertible into to US dollars. It wasn't in fact until 1961 that that took place. So what we call the Bretton Woods system that supposedly um, uh, lasted from um, uh, 1945 until Nixon closed the gold window in 1971, really didn't even start operating until 1961. Um, And by the time we get to that period, the system is already coming under enormous strain as the US is losing gold reserves, the French and others are losing confidence uh, in the system and are no longer willing to accumulate dollars. The Marshall Plan was in many senses, a major corrective both from an economic perspective That is the United States now realized that we needed much more than short-term loans from a new international institution to revive a global economy. We were going to have to reconstruct the economies of Western Europe on the fly and it was going to be enormously expensive. And second, that we were not going to be able to do this in conjunction with the Soviet Union. In fact, we had to expect that the Soviet Union was going to resist this initiative as they did. And as you know, um, uh, as I I explain in the book that the Marshall Plan is really at the center of the Cold War. That is the Soviet Union, Stalin in particular, think of the Marshall Plan as a major threat um, to their control of their satellite states in Eastern Europe and even more importantly, he saw it as a threat to the um, uh, s- s- the ability of the Soviet Union to constrain Germany, uh, whom they considered to be obviously the the, um, the, the mortal enemy.
1: And, and, you know, I've heard you say this stuff before, Dr. Steele, but I'd like you to repeat it to all, our salt viewers and guests about the size and scale of the Marshall Plan. Yes, the 14 or so billion dollars at that time, but what did it mean in today's dollars and as a percentage of GDP today? Because I think those numbers are actually monumental.
2: Right. So over a four-year period, it amounted to $13.2 billion, which may not sound like terribly much, but in current dollars, that's about $140 billion. Um, This was 2.6% of the recipient country output. There were 16 um, European countries that ultimately participated in the Marshall Plan. Uh, We can also talk about how those countries came to be selected or self-select, which is itself a really interesting story. Um, And it was 1.1% of US GDP. Now, to put that in context, if we were to launch a Marshall Plan today of equivalent size in terms of the percentage of our economy, we would be talking about a plan greater in size than $800 billion. And when you add in the military aid that started pouring into Europe, particularly after the creation of NATO um, in 1949, which was really the which became the military escort for the Marshall Plan, and then in particular um, the aid we provided during the Korean War, which began in 1950. Now we're talking about um, sums that would be equivalent today to over a trillion dollars. Um, so extremely significant. And to put this in the context of the economic performance of the U.S. Economy at the time. In 1946, so this is the year after the war ends, we had a GDP growth rate of negative 11.6%. Um, so this was a massive economic contraction brought about by the collapse in government spending. Um, with the end of the war and the withdrawal of our troops. So it was a very, very difficult period of, adju- of economic adjustment in the United States. As you can imagine, um, few in Congress, particularly on the Republican side, were in any mood for a major new foreign aid program. They wanted their peace dividend, they wanted um, uh, uh, tax cuts. To so selling this idea to the American public was itself a, a very major initiative. There was, as Marshall liked to put it, um, a Marshall Plan to um, uh, so, so, so sell the Marshall Plan. Well, um, uh,
1: well, you know, that's another fascinating part of the book because it's not Marshall's idea. Right. You know, it sort of germinates to him, and Truman says, Well, there's no way it can be the Truman Plan because I'm not that popular up on the <laughs> hill. Atkinson, you know, isn't popular either, for that matter, and so they turn to the five-star general, the chief of staff of the army, and they and he unveils this plan at Harvard University. He gives a the very famous commencement address, talking about the rebuilding of our allies, but also our adversaries. And so, it's a fascinating part of human history because uh, uh, this could be the only time where a a, a vanquishing power is replenishing and rebuilding the vanquished, which is in very stark contrast to what happened after Versailles and the Treaty of Versailles, which called for wartime reparations and loans. And so my question, Dr. Steele, is did it work?
2: Um, The short answer is yes, but as you pointed out earlier, this was very much a grand improvisation. Mind you, there was a lot of planning that went into it, a lot of serious planning, Um, but there were major adjustments that were made um, on the fly. So if you look at the original vision of the Marshall Plan, um, where did it come from? Now, you and I both know, Anthony, that the best policy ideas almost always come from economists, but in this particular case, in this rare particular case they didn't come from economists, um,
1: most- Let's not go into that story, then. Let's <laughs> wrap the story. Let me go to another question. It didn't come from an economist, Dr. Steele. No. I don't want to hear about it. Uh, so go ahead. Go where did
2: it, Well, where did the ideas come from? So very surprisingly, they came from the military establishment. And, and, and why is that? Um, consider the situation that we were in in May of 1945 when the fighting stops in Europe. We have over 3 million troops in Europe, the American public, wants them home immediately. Um, President Roosevelt had promised at Tehran in 1943 openly to withdraw all American troops from Europe within two years of the end of the fighting. And as I pointed out earlier, Truman at this point is not looking uh, to reinvent the world. He's actually searching for FDR's blueprint that he can execute it. And he starts withdrawing the the troops. By the time we get to 1946, the American military and diplomatic establishment knows that they have a huge problem on their hands um, because FDR had believed or wanted to believe that the Soviets would effectively contain themselves after the war, That that, that is that they would be satisfied with the, their newly expanded um, borders and security zone, uh, their buffer that they had created in Eastern Europe. But by 1946, it's clear they're not satisfied. They're threatening Iran. They're threatening Turkey to um, take over territory. They refused to withdraw troops from Ar- Iran. They only backed down when Truman sends a large military flotilla into the region, but the um, uh, American military establishment knows that's not gonna do, that's not gonna be sufficient for Europe. So how are we going to protect our most vital interest in the world, which we consider at the time to be in Western Europe without relying on the military? Um, And so they looked to um, uh, instigate a new form of asymmetric warfare that we would um, uh, wage against the, the Soviets to counter their conventional force dominance in Europe. And we would rely around our economic power. So we would leverage our economic dominance in the world to rebuild and reconstruct the West European economies as quickly as possible, so that they would be able to defend themselves, both their external borders and the internal integrity of their political systems. What we didn't wager, um, however, at the time, was that the Europeans wanted no part of an integrated Western European economic and political structure. The French and the British in particular said, you know, this this is a mortal threat Um, to our security, if we're no longer going to be um, self-sustaining, if we're going to be dependent on one another, how do we defend our borders? The French, for example, said, you know, you're withdrawing your troops from Europe. In five years' time, what do we do um, if the Germans cut off our coal supply? Or more likely, since you're going home, the Soviets will have taken over Germany and they will cut off our coal supply. If we're going to go forward with your economic and political integration vision. That is the vision behind the EU, which actually came from the United States. Uh, Contra Donald Trump, who as you know, said that the EU was created to screw the US on trade. It was in many ways created by the State Department. Um, If we go forward, we Europeans with your vision, we won't be able to protect ourselves. So we need security guarantees from the United States. So in 1949, a year and a day after passage of the martial aid legislation, we passed the NATO Founding Act legislation. And so if you go back to the, um, uh, the first part of my explanation here, the American military establishment was looking for a way to protect Western Europe without using the military. Yet the Europeans made it clear to us that that was, that was a, a dream that could never be fulfilled, that the US would have to make uh, firm security commitments to Western Europe in order to get them to go along with the American integration ideas.
1: And and so this is a brilliant exposition of what's in the book. And so it begs the question, did this work for the United States? And this work for the West in terms of setting up the architecture Although it wasn't a one-world architecture, it set up the architecture for the free world to have a semblance of long-term peace and long-term prosperity. It, and if it, so, what are the lessons that can be learned from that?
2: Right. Um, so when we asked the question, did it work? Um, if you look at the um, uh, early studies that had been done on the Marshall Plan, you know, going back to the late 1940s and 1950s, um, they really just simply looked at the amazing recovery of the West European economies and said, yeah, well, all this aid must have worked. Look, look, at, look at the performance of these economies. Between um, 1948 and 1942, um, uh, output in the Marshall countries increased by over 60%. Um, to put that in context, if we take the four and a half year period um, running up to 2008 and the Great Financial Crisis, um, the um, EU's uh, um, total growth rate over that period was 15%. So this is a really remarkable regeneration of the European economies. Um, but only later did economists start questioning, um, you know, how much of this came from from the Martial aid. So as economists were wont to do, uh, they ran they ran um regressions um, looking for the secret sauce what was it that revived the economies they asked was it for example that this aid money allowed them to import vital um uh commodities um industrial machinery etc that they wouldn't otherwise have been able to bring in did that revive the european economies um and the answer is yes but it would only explain about half a percent of, of, of growth, whereas you are seeing meg, many multiples of that, up to seven percentage points of additional growth coming from the, the Marshall Plan. Was it the fact that government spending was increased? No, government spending as a percentage of GDP over those four Marshall years actually fell in Europe. So it wasn't, wasn't that. Well, what was the answer? What, what, what was it in the Marshall Plan that really regenerated the European economies? And I go back to George Kennan's point, the famous American diplomat, George Kennan is one of the architects of the plan. He's no economist, but he recognizes that the primary uh, benefit of the Marshall Plan is gonna be psychological in Europe to convince the Europeans that unlike after World War I, we are not going home. That's why the Marshall Plan is a four-year scheme rather than a one-day scheme in which we write them a giant check and wish them well. We wanted to convince the Europeans that we were gonna be with them year after year. Did that work? Yes, but only with the security guarantees. And I can't emphasize how important those security guarantees were. Without the security guarantees, you wouldn't have gotten the private investment necessary to regenerate these economies. So to put that in context, look at the money we've spent on reconstruction in Iraq and Afghanistan. Well over 200 billion dollars. That Just reconstruction aid alone, that is more than 50% greater than the totality of martial aid in current dollars. So it's not as if we haven't tried a martial approach to economic reconstruction in Iraq and Afghanistan, but we were not able to provide those countries with the internal security and external security necessary to produce economic growth. Whereas in the case of the Marshall Plan, because of NATO and the security commitments of the United States, we were able to provide those guarantees. Well, and this the second thing I would just emphasize briefly is the, the the 180 degree change we made in occupation policy in Germany that is shifting from the Morgenthau plan which was to deindustrialize um, Germany essentially to impoverish it and the Marshall plan which may, which would aim to make Germany Western Germany, the part we controlled, into the industrial engine of a new integrated Europe, a totally different vision that was enormously successful.
1: Well, I mean, Liz, it's an unbelievably powerful story in the book, and it is a story about improvisation, but it's also a story about really good long-term strategic planning uh, with the intention of collaboration. And ultimately, the lessons from this book that I took away is that we needed an America engaged. Certainly we needed an America to help its own and to rebuild our infrastructure and to rebuild our lives here. But we do need an America engaged with the rest of the world uh, to give that peace, to give that confidence and to give that ultimate prosperity that we want uh, back here in our homeland.
2: Alliances, alliances, I can't emphasize this enough, are at the centerpiece of the Marshall Plan. building building alliances around the world. That is, we weren't going to rely on our our own muscle. We we were going to rely on um, others who shared a common vision, a common attachment to uh, liberal democracy and open markets. And we eventually extended that strategy to Asia as well in um, uh, rehabilitating um, uh, Japan and providing providing security for South Korea. It was the same sort of thinking that underlay the Marshall Plan.
1: Well, listen, it's a brilliant book, Doctor, and I enjoyed it a great deal. I've got to turn it over to the, uh, the homegrown millennial now. He's going to ask you some questions, uh, and he'll try to steal the show from me. So, If you have to cut them at the knees, please go ahead and do that. You have my license and proxy to do that. But go ahead, John Dorsey.
0: Well, thank you very much, Anthony, for that warm introduction. Uh, You know, as a millennial, obviously, I'm a student of history, but I'm also very concerned about the future uh, as well. So I'm going to ask you a few questions that we uh, got from our audience that pertain to topics that you're an expert on and relate to your books as well. We're talking about the Marshall Plan and all, and all the benefits that it had for the United States and for the world and the idea of a new Marshall Plan is sort of a buzzword or a buzz phrase yeah. these days. If we were to engage in a new Marshall Plan, where would that be best targeted, you know, regionally or country specific and what type of uh, aid and what type of funding would we provide to those regions or to mm-hmm. those countries? that would not only serve America's interests abroad, but also uh, aggregate to the global economy as well?
2: You know, in, in recent years, there have been all sorts of proposals for, for new Marshall plans all over the world. Um, I mean, Ukraine in Greece and Southern Europe and North Africa, the Arab, Middle East, Syria, et, et cetera, et cetera. And if you take the, the blueprint of the, the Marshall plan and try to transplant it, to these particular circumstances, you're not going to get success. Um, And why do I say that? Take Syria, um, for example. Without uh, creating an environment of internal and external security in Syria, you will never get the sort of um, uh, economic growth and stability that the Marshall Plan was able to bring in Western Europe. Remember, in the case of the Marshall countries, We weren't trying to reinvent the world, right? We were taking countries that had been democracies with uh, um, uh, market-based economic systems right before the war and rehabilitate and reconstruct them, but uh, bring them back to what they were before the war And reintegrate them on a Western European um, uh, level. So you already had functioning um, uh, relatively uh, impartial bureaucracies that were, were capable of implementing these plans. You had public support for democratic, cooperative, political structures. These are not situations that exist, for example, in Ukraine or Syria today. So it's very difficult to transplant that um, Marshall idea. That's not to say that um, using significant amounts of financial aid cannot help in many circumstances. Um, The Marshall Plan analogy has been used, for example, Um, to discuss how we should approach climate change. And there's no doubt that it's going to take significant investment in order to address the issues of um, climate change. But I don't believe that spending enormous sums of money um, as um, uh, a cure-all for problems around the world is the message that we should take away from the Marshall Plan. The primary message that we should take is that it is vitally important for the United States to build and support alliances around the world, even more important than it was in 1945. In 1945, again, we were at the um, apex of our power. We account for more than half the world's manufacturing output. Um, We have sole possession of atomic weapons. We were never in a position, a stronger position to pursue a policy of America first, yet we didn't. We didn't. And why? Because we had a long-term view of what the Marshall Plan was about. Uh, Let me quote from a remarkable letter. I I, I didn't get to emphasize this before, but it's very important that this was a bipartisan initiative. It's hard to imagine something like this happening today, Um, uh, but this was a bipartisan initiative. Harry Truman, a Democrat, faced with a Republican Congress, still managed to push through this remarkable uh, agenda, agenda senator henry cabot lodge jr in october of 1947 writes to senator arthur vandenberg a republican senator from michigan head of the senate foreign relations committee and let me read you what what he said i think it, it's just um so remarkable and, and spot on he says and i'm quoting the recovery of western europe is a 25 to 50 year proposition and the aid which we extend now and in the next three years will in the long future result in our having strong friends abroad. So fast forward from the Marshall Plan to 1989, right? This is this is 42 years after the, the Marshall Plan. The Berlin Wall collapses. And what, what do we notice immediately? That the alliances that America built as offshoots of the Marshall Plan, NATO and the, the embryo of the European Union, are now more popular than ever. The new, newly liberated countries of Central and, Eastern European, uh, Central and Eastern Europe are clamoring to get in, whereas the alliances that, such as they were that the Soviets created, like the Warsaw Pact, collapse overnight. Now, these alliances are far more valuable to us today, now that we only represent a quarter of the global economy than they were in 1945 when we were half the global economy. So we are reaping the dividends today of the investments we made then. Um, So to to give you other examples of what I consider successful examples of Marshall thinking, think of the creation of NAFTA. Um, NAFTA was not just about integrating the economies of um, uh, North uh, America, it was about putting the political relationship between the United States and Mexico on a very different path. Demonstrating to the Mexicans that we respected their sovereignty and that we were treating them as equal partners in an important initiative. And security cooperation between the United States and Mexico improved dramatically after the implementation of NAFTA. So my bottom line is if you're looking for areas in which to apply martial thinking, remember that the creation of alliances for the United States was the central innovation behind it.
0: So I wanna switch gears a little bit, uh, again, talking a little bit more about things that are happening in the modern day, because you wrote a fantastic op-ed in Business Insider that cites our good friend, Jeff Sonnenfeld, Anthony is a member of the Yale CEO Summit community, as I know you are, um, and I've had the privilege of accompanying him to a couple of events, and it's a, it's a unique privilege to be able to see all those great uh, leaders in one room talking about the issues of the day. And he did a study recently where he surveyed his community, found that 84% of executives said that the failed pandemic response by the Trump administration hurt their business, and that uh, generally the view coming out of those meetings is that a vacuum of leadership has harmed corporate interests and business and the economy in the United States. Trump always viewed the stock market as a barometer of his success. You know, the stock market performed very well during his tenure, as it did under President Obama. And he often said that the market would crash if Vice President Biden, now President-elect Biden, uh, were to win the election and take office. But instead, markets rallied after the presidential election and, and the results became clear, and they've rallied in the aftermath of the Georgia Senate runoffs, where the Democrats won to give them a a majority in the Senate. Why, in your view, are markets rallying on the back of a presidency that the markets did well under Trump? But why today are they rallying on news of Biden winning and of Democrats getting control of Congress? There's no doubt uh,
2: in my mind that there were elements of the Trump um, economic architecture that the markets like very much. For example, my my co-author, Ben Della Roca, and I, we looked at the rise in what's called implied earnings growth in stock prices after the successful implementation of of President Trump's um, uh, tax cuts, particularly the corporate tax cuts in 2017. Um, And we found a significant Trump bump. Um, but we also just, um, uh, examined in our business insider piece, um, what happened to implied earnings growth after the election. Um, that is after you strip out extraneous factors like interest rates and so on. And we found a very significant, um, Biden bump. Um, it was in fact, interestingly enough, almost identical in the size to what, uh, was called the Trump bump uh, back after the election in 2016. And what underlay it? Um, you referred to Professor uh, Sonnenfeld. Well, we think um, first and foremost, um, if you, you look at his survey work and the survey work that others have done, um, business wants to see the pandemic addressed um, uh, effectively and with far more vigor than it's um, uh, been in, uh, addressed by the um, Trump administration. Um, Professor Sonnenfeld's um, surveys um, really made clear uh, the degree to which executives were not only deeply concerned about the pandemic, but believed that President Trump's response to the pandemic was holding them back. Uh, wasn't just, gosh, this pandemic is awful, but our response to the pandemic is grossly insufficient. So this is um, one reason. Um, another reason is that the markets um, are, are uh, very positive about the prospects for more fiscal stimulus. Um, and I think that's primarily what you're seeing now Um, in terms of the reaction to the Georgia vote, Um, that if the Democrats come to control the Senate, the prospects for um, another very significant stimulus package um, are very good and perhaps even more, perhaps we'll finally get a significant infrastructure um, initiative, which the markets would um, also applaud. Finally, what you see in this survey data is great concern among executives about the enormous um, uh, economic and political instability um, that we've seen over the past four years with um, uh, trade wars which have gone nowhere in terms of um, uh, changing China's behavior, for example, um, uh, in a positive direction, beating up our, our allies in North America and Europe and, and Asia, you know, South Korea and Japan, the markets don't like that at all. And they view the prospect of our finally re-engaging positively with, um, with um, uh, our allies and having a coherent approach to the China challenge. The markets seem to view that very positively.
0: So speaking of China, I want to close uh, with a couple couple questions on China that I'll, I'll sort of weave into one is that you're a, a great student of China. You study the Belt and Road Initiative, the Asian Infrastructure Bank. And while Trump has been pulling America out of these multilateral agreements and, and uh, stepping back from the rest of the world, China has been stepping into that void, You know, even coming into areas of, of South America. Um, what was the strategic thinking behind China with the Belt and Road Initiatives? How have they Uh, been successful or not been successful? And what direction do you expect U.S.-China relations to take uh, over the next four years, at least, of the Biden administration?
2: That's a lot to bite off in a a few (laughs) minutes. So where where do we start? Um, Belt and Road. Um, Belt and Road, you will never find on a Chinese government website, here is what Belt and Road is all about. This is what we wanted to accomplish, and this is how we're doing it. And here, by the way, are all the details of our lending contracts um, uh, under, under Belt and Road. You will never find anything like that. So when I built um, uh, my Belt and Road tracker uh, at the council with Benjamin de Roca, how did we find out what China was actually doing in these countries that it was um, uh, lending to for major infrastructure um, uh, projects? How did we find out about it? It was extremely difficult to get details of these um, uh, contracts. We had to use in, in some cases, estimates based on indirect sources, or some things that were published by the recipient governments, but never, never anything that we could get out of China. So China's been very uh, opaque. It wants a few things out of, uh, out of Belt and Road. Um, uh, first of all, it wants to start um, uh, getting um, uh, better returns um, on its reserves. It's not investing its central bank reserves in, directly in, in, in Belt and Road. But if you think of the funds as being f- fungible, um uh China is looking for a way to um diversify away from US investments in particular um US um uh treasuries and get a, a better return infrastructure seems to be one way of doing it. Of course, you have massive over um uh uh overbuilding in, in China, massive overcapacity. They're looking for some way to create the demand for this. So they're lending to these um, uh, uh, developing um, uh, countries. These countries will then uh, hire um, uh, Chinese firms to, to build uh, the infrastructure. Um, China is, although China itself is a major borrower from the World Bank um uh, uh which is quite perverse because china is now one of is the major competitor to the world bank as a, a, a de- de- development um uh lender um china is um uh making these loans at a very significantly higher interest rate um now when these loans fell uh, many cases, if you do get details of the contract, like, for example, the port facility that China built in, in Sri Lanka, which failed Sri Lanka, couldn't pay back, China takes over these facilities. So even if China did not set out with Belt and Road to become a colonial power, they will, in effect, Become a colonial power and perhaps a, a, a hated one by taking over um, these uh, facilities, which they supported with the, this um, this massive expansion of debt in the developing world. Now, how should we react um, to it? Uh, uh, in my view, it's it's pretty much a no-brainer. And let's go back to the what the U.S. did after World War II. Take the World Bank and the IMF. Consider. Um, what we managed to create in terms of the architecture, architecture there, there is only one country that has veto power within the IMF and the World Bank, and that is the United States. Can you imagine us building an institution like the World Bank today and telling the world, um, we want uh, veto power within this organization, so veto power. No one else will have it. The world would laugh at us. But this is our inheritance from um, uh, our victory in World War II. We should be exploiting it. Nothing can happen within the World Bank without our agreement um, uh, to it. We should be putting more capital behind the World Bank. Again, why? We can use it to promote Um, uh, our values, our way of doing things, our dedication um, to non-corruption, our dedication to environmental um, uh, protection, um, our dedication to not creating debt traps. And guess what? We get to leverage it with other people's money because most of the money actually comes from um, the other countries who participate in the World Bank. It's an absolute no-brainer for the United States in its own interest to be pursuing these initiatives through the multilateral institutions that it itself created. Again, coming back to the point the point, alliances, we built institutions and alliances after World War II. We should be today reaping the benefits of those institutions um, uh, because um, our allies um, have been so significantly um, enriched. By, by this architecture that we created. The fact that they're still willing to, to work with us and indeed are enthusiastic about working with us is the greatest advantage that we bring in terms of countering China's rise to dominance in the, the um, uh, global economy. So we should be showing a united face to China. We should be showing um, the world our positive values, our dedication to um, liberal democracy and open, open markets. If we do this together with our allies and within the multilateral institutions that we created after World War II, we will have far more moral capital um, uh, than we would by going it alone.
0: And the direction of U.S.-China relations, you know, what path do you expect those to take? I think most people expect U.S.-China relations to improve, but who's going to give more? Is China going to relax some of its uh, economic conditions, open up their economy a little bit, allow more private enterprise uh, and and less human rights types of restrictions in the country? I expect the United States to be to acquiesce more to uh, demands that that, uh, China is making on our on our side.
2: Yeah, uh, unfortunately, I think the road that China is, is headed down right now is, is pretty clear. It's um, a road towards um, more state economic control, more authoritarian um, political control, more regional belligerence um, toward other other nations in, in the area, uh, and we have to be concerned about it. But the question is, how do we address it? And again, um, I can't harp on this more strongly enough. We need to do it together with our allies. Um, I I wrote um, uh, a a chapter to um, a a size volume um, recently in which um, uh, I I advocated um, a return to the 2 world thinking that we implemented in the the Marshall Plan with respect to China. That is, we need to build a massive coalition around the world of like-minded countries with which we will develop things like 5G and 6G um, uh, infrastructure, things of that nature so that we will not be reliant uh, uh, on China. I do think we should always hold out an olive branch to China and make it clear that if uh, China pursues um, uh, political and economic reforms that will bring them back towards the the vision that we had um, when China um, uh, entered the WTO um, uh, nearly two decades ago, that we would welcome China, but we are not afraid, together with our allies, to stand up for our our values and our, our interests. And if we need to construct a new liberal democratic open market international uh, infrastructure from which China is um, excluded, we should be willing to take those bold steps.
0: Ben, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you on uh, and your rich expertise Two great books you wrote on the battle at Bretton Woods, as well as the Marshall Plan. We would recommend that all of our viewers go out and read those books. They provide a rich history, as well as lessons that can be applied today uh, as we enter a new era in Washington. So thank you so much, Ben, for joining us. Anthony, you have any final words?
1: Ben, anything you're writing currently that you could talk about? Yeah,
0: uh, I am
2: writing a political biography of Henry Wallace. Um, who was uh, FDR's mm-hmm. vice president from 1940
1: to 1944? Yeah. No. Um, One Wallace, another progressive romantic. There you are,
2: uh, exactly. Um, Wallace is perhaps the most interesting almost president who ever was. Um, he lost out to Harry Truman in a very strange um, open convention for vice president in um, 1944, and um, had he won that nomination. He would have become president on FDR's death and instead of Harry Truman, and he would have tried to take the nation in a very different direction. So I'm writing this book on the basis of um, a new, fascinating new um, Russian and FBI archival material that's never been brought to bear, to sort of to tell the story of the, the vision that he had and to really tell a counterfactual history of what might have happened had Henry Wallace rather than Harry Truman uh, become president in 1945.
1: Well, we really appreciate you being on. Thank you. And uh, I hope to get you back on for that book once it's published, Ben.
2: <laughs> be my, my pleasure.
1: Own. Thank you. Really appreciate it, Dr. Steele. Uh, thank you for joining Talks.
0: And thank you everybody who tuned in to today's SALT Talk uh, with Dr. Ben Steele from the Council on Foreign Relations, out with a new book about the Marshall Plan. Just a reminder, if you missed any of today's talk or any of our previous talks, you can access the entire archive of SALT Talks on our website, salt.org backslash talks backslash archive. You can sign up for all of our future talks at salt.org backslash talks. We have several talks a week Throughout 2021, we'll take a couple breaks for some conferences that we're doing, but for the most part, we're going to continue this SALT Talk series indefinitely uh, throughout the year. Please follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and please tell your friends about SALT Talks. We love growing our community and exposing more people to the educational uh, expertise that our uh, speakers provide. On behalf of the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off for today. We'll see you tomorrow again on SALT Talks.